0: Welcome to Childhood Art, a podcast sponsored by the Center for the Study of Childhood Art at the University of Arkansas. I'm Christopher Schulte, Director of the Center for the Study of Childhood Art and co-host of the Childhood Art Podcast.
1: Hi, I'm Haiyan Park, Associate Director of the Center for the Study of Childhood Art and co-host of the Childhood Art Podcast.
0: As an extension of the Childhood Art Speaker Series, the Childhood Art Podcast utilizes the format of a follow-up dialogue to center the practices of leading scholar practitioners with special attention given to the untold and perhaps understated interests, connections and experiences that shape their work. Today, we are very pleased to welcome Dr. Gail Bolt. Dr. Gail Bolt is distinguished professor of education at the Pennsylvania State University, teaching graduate seminars in theory and philosophy as they relate to contemporary issues in education. At the undergraduate level, she works in the elementary and early childhood program teaching literacy methods classes for pre-K through fourth grade pre-service teachers. She is senior editor of the Bank Street Occasional Paper Series. She is also a psychoanalytically oriented psychotherapist doing play therapy with children in a community mental health setting. Dr. Bolt, welcome to Childhood Art.
2: Thanks so much to both of you for having me again.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So, Dr. Bull, we'd like to begin with with a question that relates to something that you discussed in your presentation. So one of the things that I was really struck by in your talk um, was the relational component of your work with children informed by the writings of Daniel Stern. You use the concept of effective attunement to describe this work. I wonder if you could talk a bit more about what you mean by effective attunement and how it has helped you to think about your work with children.
2: Sure. Um, When I use that term, and you know, lots of people are using it these days for lots of things I'm but I'm specifically referring to the way that the idea uh, is discussed in the work of Daniel Stern and his, uh, you know, he's got a a, a very well known book called the um, interpersonal life of the human infant. Um, And then he also worked extensively with this with the Boston change process study group to Try to understand how it is that pe- people, how we affect one another. In that case, specifically through therapy. But his most of his work was as, uh, as an infant researcher. Um, and so, when he's talking about affective attunement, he's talking about the way that um, caregivers worldwide seem to, uh, you know, without training, thinking or planning, uh, seem to sense and react to infants. Actions and their uh, and sort of their expressions, uh, their verbalizations, with these very affect laden responses. Um, in fact, often heightened uh, and and um, you know through tone of through pitch and intensity and the bigness of the expressions. And what Stern um, talks about is that it, it it's not. Um, Simply, it's it's not simply that we reciprocate in verbal or behavioral actions. It's that we um, it's that we attune the the responses, um, it, and it can be a polymodal attunement. Where, as I said in the talk, if a if the child expresses some kind of excitement on their face, the caregiver will respond in a big way with. Um, you know, maybe waving hands or bouncing or something. And, and so what, you know, uh, he's arguing that it's not, it doesn't matter, we're not, it's not a matching or a copying. It's, it's saying to the other, um, you're affecting me. <laughs> um, and that's, that's the nature I think of affective attunement is that we're attuned to the particular um, uh, expression, the emotional expression. So if the child's sad, we don't react by being happy. Um, it's it's that we're attuned to their particular expression and we um, respond and we're responsive to it. And what Stern ultimately argues is that as the infant experiences this, this is the development of a sense of efficacy, like the ability to affect the world and the, and the fact that you can be affected by the world in return because it's by mold, it both goes both ways. Um, it's transpersonal. So it's also that the infant is seeing itself affecting the caretaker. And very early on, infants begin to work, If work, I don't want to say consciously, but certainly work deliberately to attempt to affect their caregiver as well. And so um, it, it's the fact that you can affect the world, but you can be affected by it. You can get a response to your actions that is attuned and that is not Damaging or dangerous, and or or, you know, or or miss the mark in some way. Um, So you know, I I became very interested in his work, and I also became very interested in how that functions in therapy and in how that functions in teaching. And I I you know I extend that. I don't know that his research would extend it, but I extend it to the experiences of kids in school or kids in a clinic about whether they feel like they matter. Like, can I affect what's happening um, in this classroom? Does my being matter? Does it matter if I'm here at all? Um, Can I have, and I'm not saying, I'm saying it's the way that we experience it with, you know, uh, unconsciously without somebody saying, oh, you really matter. It's that experience of people responding to you in a way that says to you, whoa, I took you in and I'm affected by what you did or said or thought or felt or expressed Um, and, so I'm very interested in how people come to feel that they matter and yeah, what I that empowers then. Sorry.
0: No, I, I I think it's really interesting that, and I, I guess I'm curious to hear a bit more about, um, I suspect as a teacher, this has always been something you've been thinking about. Uh, and I wonder, I, was it was it your work in the clinic as a therapist that really highlighted it? Or was it? was it maybe first the work that you did as a teacher that really underscored the significance of this in a therapeutic setting?
2: Well, I I mean, I think it certainly was important to me as a teacher. I now look back at my years of teaching, which was quite a while ago, but I look back at it now through sort of this new lens of what happens in a clinic. So I think I would say that clinically, it was in the clinic that I was forced to come up with an understanding of how Uh, you know, of how people, of how therapy works, which I would also say is how it is that we affect one another. And then I thought back on, oh, that was so much of what was going on in the way I was a teacher. Um, uh, I might not have named it that way, but it's certainly the same concern, I would say, across both settings. Uh, I could I don't know. Did you want me to say more about like how that looks in the classroom, or
0: yeah, well, my next my next question was really about like, I mean, those are they're radically different settings, right? I mean, just in general. But I mean, I suspect that that's a practice and a kind of lived set of relations that are are quite differently felt and sort of experienced. And so I want, yeah, I wonder if you could talk just a little bit more about you know, how you live with those things in maybe very different ways as a result of them being in a clinic or maybe in the classroom. And of course, those contexts are always situated too. So,
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously doing therapy and being a teacher aren't the same thing for a lot of good reasons. Um, And one, uh, you know, for one thing, I'm, I'm responsible for one kid at a time, not 20 kids at a time. And for another thing, in a classroom, kids can't express the, the range of things freely. You, know, you just can't have that going on in a classroom the way that you can clinically where you've, you know, where you've got one. In the clinic, I may have a kid who's running pretty wild and you can't have that in a classroom. And so, and then also I think more importantly, it's um, if, if as a teacher, you have a particular sets of goal for a particular content to be learned um, I know my my supervisor would always say, oh, you're being too, early on, my teacher, my supervisor would say, oh, you're thinking like a teacher, not like a therapist, meaning that I was too concerned with being didactic, with trying to teach the child something. Um, so, you know, so they're different. But at the same time, I would say for me as a teacher, as well as clinically, well, as a teacher, I was... Very early on, I became much more interested in the children's experiences of learning and what it was that those experiences enabled for them. I was really affected from my my teacher education program. I was really affected by a study that Jean Anion did back in the 80s or something where she looked at three schools um, that all had the same curriculum, but the main difference was pretty dramatic social class differences. And how it was that the teachers uh, communicated to the kids who they were in relationship to curriculum, and then how that affected the kids' um, <clears throat> understanding of who and what they could be and do in relation to learning and um, curricular. <clears throat> pardon me, curricular materials. Um, and essentially, the differences she found was like, did you feel like you like the curriculum owned you, and you either had to, um, you just had to produce the right answers, and you could fail or succeed in relation to the curriculum? Or did you feel more like you either own the curriculum or had some kind of partnership with the curriculum where you were creating, you were able to create and use it? So there's this idea of usability that's really important therapeutically. Are you usable to your clients um, as a a therapist? Are you, you, can they use you for the things that they need to use you for? And as a teacher, I really from very early on was was committed to the idea that the children should be able to use curriculum and use me in a way that they experienced themselves as powerful learners who could ask and answer their own questions in the world, who could do things in the world. So from very early on, as soon as I learned how to do it, it took me a while to figure out how to do it. You know, I had a very project-based curriculum where the kids were able to pursue passions and ask and answer questions that, that mattered to them and hopefully become very uh, excited about their capacity as people who could think and learn uh, for themselves and with their peers and so on. So I think those those were ways that there was already, always, that was present in my teaching as well as clinically.
0: Yeah. I. I just have one more follow-up, and then and then I want to make sure we get to this next question, but I think it's, I, I'm, I know we have a lot of uh, teachers who listen to the podcast and and tune into the speaker series, and, you know, I, I don't want to ask you to provide this kind of prescription because I'm not sure that that's helpful, but, you know, part of what you're talking about, this idea of usability, right, and making sure that students find the curriculum usable and that can see you as something that's usable too as a way to uh, sort of empower themselves and their thinking and their, their kind of relationship to the classroom, uh, I think is a really important and also challenging practice. And I wonder like if you can maybe speak to some of the uh, qualities of doing that work in the classroom that, you, that were hard to figure out how to do but maybe important to enabling that.
2: Sure, um so I uh, i I mean, in terms of of enabling it, I would say it had <clears throat> pardon me, it had a lot to do, I think, with creating predictable structures. that so where the kids knew, um okay, this is our we every afternoon was inquiry time. But they they knew what inquiry, they knew the shape of inquiry time, so that they didn't spend time saying, How do we do this? Are we doing this right? And instead, they were able to use that time to pursue the content that interest interested them. So we did, you know, early in the year, we spent a lot of time sort of asking or the first month of class, I would say we spent time saying, What are the things you can do during this time? And then what what's the what what are where are we trying to end at, end up at? And how and what is the first thing you do, and then the next thing you do, and the next thing you do. And you know, so for example, even if I think of something as basic as reading and writing workshop, it was, you know, the first day was how do you pick what you're going to do during the time? And the next day was, well, then what do you do the next day? And then by the time we had, and, and where do we want to end up? What what kind of things do we want to end up with? So by the time we had gone through that for a month, we had pretty well established how you can spend these top blocks of time. Um, And they were, I guess the other thing was, it wasn't rigid in the sense of today, everybody needs to do this. It was like, okay, here's the end point. You wanna end up with um, something that you've written that you wanna read to the class, you're happy with it. Um, But that might happen two weeks in and that might happen a month in and that might happen six weeks in um so the kids could spread out and be in all different places in this process uh where they wherever they needed to be and then that put me in a position of um they would come to me and say here's what we need during this time or I would float around and say what do you need during this time or what are you doing Or what's happening um so that was a lot of it I, I was lucky the last several years of my teaching I w- we moved over to a uh Uh, where we had the kids for two years. So I had third and fourth graders. So I would have half my class traded over, switched over every year. So when the third graders came in, the fourth graders already knew how this stuff worked and could bring them right into it. And so there was a lot of peer mentoring going on. So I guess, you know, in terms of how, what it looks like, it looks like a structure that helps you know what you can, what are the ways that you might be spending this time. and then that frees you to actually do the work. Um, but there was another thing you asked, and I don't remember exactly what it was. You probably don't either.
0: <laughs> I don't either no, but i and but I, I I really appreciate the 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 quality and depth of the response there. I mean, uh, I wasn't anticipating that response about like predictable structure, but I think it's I think it's really terrific advice for for teachers in general. And not as a constraint, but as one that enables uh, yeah,
2: I mean, I, I think the same thing is true clinically when you when you're in therapy, there's a there is a ritual to therapy that's incredibly comforting and predictable and secure. You know that there's a way that we greet our clients the same way every week. There's the way we open the sessions the same way every week. There's the predictability of the of the clinical space, like what that looks like, what's there. The fact that the toys that they anticipate are actually there, the fact that the room looks the way they anticipate it to look. And there's a way that I say goodbye to my clients every week. That's very, you know, it's the same. And there's, and having been myself uh, uh, in analysis for many years, I know how deeply emotionally containing and comforting it that, that kind of ritual is. And it's a ritual that's unique to, between each client and the therapist so that also says you know i there's you have a, a particular reality that is in our relationship to me and i have that to you it's a thing that we share those you know it's probably no different than your family rituals or your kids want the same thing every year on the holidays right or they or the same food or the the the, the beauty of ritual and then how that opens up space for difference and I, that's the other thing i remembered i was going to say was it's is that dif- difference in the relationship in these it, difference is important too because not only difference fuels the excitement of what we're doing in that period in that space right it's the new there's newness and and there's discovery and there's possibility potential um and there's also a difference in the sense of like we don't always get along it's not this is not a theory of parents and and their their children are perfectly attuned all the time either we are different people, and being able to come to deal with that difference and negotiate that difference and come out the other side and still have a relationship is also part of, you know, you, you can't, you need to have the, the, the familiar structure, I think, to give you that, that space within which you can successfully uh, experience difference and not be overwhelmed by it, um, not have to react badly to it. So, uh, and, and then the more, and you know, in the therapeutic uh, perspective, the more we're able to experience and take in and work with difference, the, the broader our ability to be in the world becomes. We can, we can experience more things, different things, and have a way of not being threatened and overwhelmed by them and taking them in and having a repertoire now of how we respond to these things that allows us to experience the world in bigger ways. And I think that same thing is true in classrooms as well. So how do we bring new material to children where they're not overwhelmed or threatened? You know, my son was dyslexic and school for most of his career felt dangerous to him. So every time a teacher wanted to promote, introduce newness, it had to go through this cycle of, is this newness going to once again hurt me?
0: Mm
1: -hmm. (laughs) Um, And so, yeah.
0: Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Gail.
1: (laughs) This um, actually leads to um, my question, um, but you actually already touched upon this a little bit. But Gail, I was really um, curious about this during your presentation and as you're talking now, the relationship between your clinical practice, your practice as a teacher educator, and more broadly your research practice. So I wonder if you could um, talk a little bit more about the various contexts in which you have worked with children. Um, You just mentioned your role as a mother, um, as an elementary teacher, an educator, a researcher, therapist, and so on. Um, So, and could you talk about um, some of the resonances between these contexts and practices?
2: Yeah, I mean, um, you know, I work, I work as a literacy researcher, but I would say that literacy research is, in some sense, the material um, of my larger interest, which is as a curriculum theorist. And as a curriculum theorist, you know, my work has always been guided by asking, what happens if I look at schools or kids or curriculum through this lens? or the, in their, you know, these various theoretical lenses. Um, so I've worked across my career with, you know, feminist and queer and psychoanalytic and uh, postcolonial and a whole bunch of theoretical lenses and poststructural, particularly to look at um, to look what happens if we think about a classroom in this way. I think the production of stories of all different kinds of ways to think about a cl- what's going on in the classroom. Is what you know. It creates a lot of potential for us to see kids, or curriculum, or teachers, in more, in broader, more exciting, and more generous ways. Um, I, one time when I was a teacher, Diane Stevens, uh, who's now retired, she's at the University of South Carolina, but at that time she's at the University of Hawaii, and she came to do a workshop with our our, our teachers, and she said, when you have something going on in a classroom that's difficult what you need to start by doing is generating 10 theories about why it's happening. She said, it's easy to generate three theories, but once you get up to 10 theories, you're having to be really creative in the way that you're thinking about what's going on in your classroom. And that's really valuable because we go, it, she, one of the things as she, we, she gave us a scenario and we generated those first three theories. And she said, every teacher everywhere comes up with those first three theories because that is our folk pedagogy of teaching. That's what we all have learned, how we, the explanatory stories we've all learned. But the creativity and the flexibility start when you get to theory, you know, eight, nine to 10 or whatever. So, um, so that's what I try to do for my research as well is I try to generate as many productive ways of thinking about what's happening as possible, right? So that we can, we can be more generous and creative in the ways that we think about classrooms. And I particularly, the generosity part is particularly important to me because I know that it's the same kids who get the same bad stories told about them over and over again. So, you know, related to race, related to uh, social class, related to linguistics, related to all kinds of things, the same kids get the same bad stories told about their You know how about how unruly or uh, dangerous or you know uh, lazy or whatever it is they are, Um, and the stories never implicate the teachers, the school, the curriculum, the practices. Um, So, I think in the last, it's it's changed over time what theories I'm really using to think about things. The last ten years, I've really been. As I said, mentioned briefly in the talk, I've been really working with the theories of uh, these French theorists, Deleuze and Guattari, but I, I guess partly it's about um, wanting to find enabling and joyful ways of thinking about children's lives in, in classrooms and in clinics and in homes and put, I guess ways that are hopeful and full of potential.
1: hmm Yeah, I think that's really important, we don't necessarily think about theory as generous or creative sometimes, and um, just to shift our minds into that, you know, and like really attuned to those qualities, I think it's really important for all researchers, educators, um, parents, anyone interested in children, so thanks, Gail.
0: As a a follow-up, Gail, I I wonder, um, you know, one of the things that, that I find really interesting about your work, and I'm curious when in your career, this became something that was really um, accentuated was the extent to which, uh, you know, the experiences and the lives of, of young people you're working with, where your attention to how they're being harmed uh, became a process of kind of looking at your own complicity or the complicity of the, of schooling of the structures around them, as opposed to that kind of like tendency to sort of pile on or blame the child. I'm curious, like when in when in your career you were, you know, you maybe first aware of like the the necessity to ask larger questions about what's happening in those moments.
2: I, I think that was all. I, I think that was always the case. I don't think there was ever a time when that wasn't. I when I applied for my teacher education program, I, <clears throat> you know, I said I wanted to understand how, how schools can. At that point, I was mostly uh, concerned with the experiences of girls in schools. This was in the late '80s, early '90s, um, and so you know, I was mostly interested in kind of a feminist perspective on schooling and. Um, but my original application to schooling was to, to my teacher education program was wanting to understand how schools able and enabled or um, or made um, made girls less able uh, to be powerful uh, learners or to be subjects of of sexist you know attacks or abuse. I had. Before I came to teacher education, I had worked at one point in a clinic for um, women who had were being domestically abused. Um, I had worked for a couple years in California in a, a program that was uh, organized to keep children out of jail. And it was a program, uh, the children who had been, you know, found guilty of serious offenses um, but rather than incarcerating them, it was a program that brought them together with the people who who had been the victims of their crime to try to, you know, instill some understanding and to negotiate some settlements that didn't involve going to jail. So I my I've, there's never been a time in my career when I haven't been mostly in, engaged in um, ways to mitigate what I understood to be social or cultural harm. Um, yeah. You know, when I was a kid, we moved constantly. I changed schools many, many times um, when I was young. Um, and I guess I always had a kind of an outsider experience of schooling or, and um, I don't know, never felt very comfortable in school. So, you know, th- there's a way in which a lot of what a lot of people do has to do with trying to address and repair some things that were hard for us and that I think that's certainly always been the case in my career it's been about having children's it's been ha- it's been about having children's experiences understood you know not just doing things to children but understand what it's like to be that child and to yeah. and to 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 love what you're experiencing in that child and then you know when you love it you want it to make, you want it to be such a center part of what you're doing. So as a teacher, I found kids to be so funny and interesting and exciting. And I and I wanted that, I wanted that to be the center of the class. My enjoyment of who kids were, I wanted that to be the center of the classroom, not curriculum. Curriculum can arise from that, really great curriculum can arise from how interested and excited and funny kids are. Um, um, but my pleasure in teaching was that, was who they are. Yeah,
0: Thank you, Gail. I appreciate
1: it. Mm-hmm. Um, Gail, I find it interesting that in your interaction with children and your practice involved both physical and conceptual materials, um, mm-hmm. from paint, sand, to sound, and words, um, affecting the rhythmic ways of being together, as you described. So for listeners who are interested in working with young children through materials could you talk more about how you have come to notice materials as important and how we can actively attune to the effective potential of materials in our own practice Yeah I mean I didn't
2: I didn't realize it initially but it was the persistence with which the kids came back to the materials I mean they when it, pardon me one of the advantages that being that if you do that, there are kinds of therapy, I should say, where you say, okay, we have these three behavioral goals, and then we're going to, you know, and here's the practices we're going to do to get the child to do this, da, da, da. But that's certainly not the kind of therapist I am. Um, So, you know, my kind of therapy is the kids will walk in and I'll say, well, what would you like to do today? And, you know, and then they would engage the materials and the persistence with which they went back to particular materials. The fact that a child would play the same game over and over and over again in the sand table for weeks, if not months, or, you know, the, <laughs> they would get the paint out and they would, um, <clears throat> we had those little round pallets that have the little egg shaped holes in them that they could put paint in and they would spend, they might spend 20 minutes putting paint in those little holes and maybe mixing it, but never even painting. Um, and they would do that over and over again, or the way that they would use Play-Doh. And part, there was the part of me was like, oh my God, they're wasting the, oh! That, the, you know, the part of me that was like, things had to be productive. They're, they're, and I, but I knew as a therapist, I didn't say that I had to bite my tongue. So the fact of being a therapist forced me into a kind of watchfulness, waiting and watching, and just seeing what would have happened that I might not have otherwise taken, maybe as a teacher or as a parent even. Um um, so uh and then I became interested in okay, what are they doing with all that? Why the why the repetition? Or also like with sound, like what was the point of the amount of time that we spent of kids just chanting the alphabet in funny voices? What what was this about? And yet it happened with many kids, not just one kid, but multiple kids, over and over and over again. So I had to ask myself why. Does that stuff, why? Why does it keep coming up? Why does that matter? What's it doing? Um, and eventually, I was, a, you know, through doing a lot of reading um, of these theorists, these psychoanalytic researchers, I was able to come to the understanding of it has to do with what it produces between you, the two of you in the room, and the way that I responded to what the kids were doing but also what, it produ- what, the, what the materiality of the material produces for you, the way sand feels or the way paint or play doh feel and what, the way you lose yourself in it or the way you can be destructive with it or, or the way that you can throw it around, any, any of that, it produces an experience of what's possible that I've come to understand really matters.
0: Yeah, it's interesting to hear you talk about this, a a few connections that I'm seeing. One is to what you discussed previously about like the predictability of structure. I mean, there's, it seems like there's great potential. And and I would say as an art educator, I I think this too, that, you know, having materials linger in spaces Mm -hmm. for long periods of time, right? So one of our colleagues during the speaker series asked about time. Mm -hmm. the importance of time to some of these practices and I think materials are a central part of that you know the the familiarity and sort of lingering presence of a material doesn't mean that it retains somehow the same meaning or potential but that that familiarity and that lingering presence is often the kind of impetus to like constructing difference in relationship Mm -hmm. to it so it's interesting to hear you to talk a little bit about that I, I I'd be curious to if that's something you think a lot about in terms of like uh, the therapy setting you're in. And at the same time, from like a literacy standpoint, just the importance mm-hmm. of materials and the the relationship of of language to that work.
2: Yeah. Well, yeah, absolutely, Chris. I, um, you know, the, you, you, you were, you're right. When you say the material's there over time, the children <coughs> it, might relate to it differently over time. Um, so one of the things that is fascinating in therapy is that children often will play the same games. It seems like they're playing the same game over and over and over, and they will come into the clinic to turn, like today we are doing this and they'll pick up a game that they've been playing for weeks. Um, but it's not the same every time there's, there's small differences in every time. And it's, it's important to for me as a therapist to pay attention to how it changes over the fact that it is changing over time. But I do want to say I often, often, I don't know what's going on. I don't know why the child is playing the way they are. I don't know why that they made that change. And they made that change in that. And there are times when I do think, oh, wow, something really big just happened. I can see it. You know, there are times when the child has for months played at me being the evil witch and and then there's a shift and suddenly I'm there. I'm their assistant and then suddenly I'm some so and I do think that what they're doing is playing with, you know, the, there's a there's a certain repetition in the play where they're 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 initially they're testing out the these familiar schema of who and what things are and, and people are um, and they're laying it out in the in the in the playroom. To, and I'm not saying they're doing this consciously at all. but to, to experience how I react to it. Um, and then over time they try new things. And so there's this expansion of what's possible. And the same thing is true in relation to materials. You know, initially they might be very careful with the play-doh. And two months later, it might just turn into a you know, that kind of weird gray brown play play-doh mass when everything gets smushed together. And they're trying, you're right. It's, it's, it's the, it's the exploration of what's possible and materials are really, really important to that. Um, so that's part of it. Um, and then you said something about, um, oh, how do I think about that in relation to literacy? Um, I, I think that I think about literacy in the same way that I think about talk, speech, uh, and in the, which is in the same way I think about materials which is that they that all of it has the potential, ha, all of it is potential. Um, so when I'm when I'm with a group, when I was a teacher and I'm reading a particular book with the kids and it, in in our comfortable, you know we had the, we had the, te- the the author's big author's chair that I could sit in when I was reading, but they could sit in when they were reading, and it had, you know, we had a big rug and we had our bookcases around us. And um, we we had a particular time of day when we did it, and a particular way that we did it. So there was amazing, you know, kind of comfort and shared a shared community familiarity with what was happening. And then I would read the book. I would read this book, and the book had the ability to enter in as material in our relationships. I think one of the things that, well, that Kevin Leander and I have written about quite a lot is that literacy researchers tend to think that the goal is the literacy, the goal is the book, the goal is to read, the goal is the story, but I say it's all material in these affective flows, it's all material in our attunement, in our experiences of attunement and difference, and how does the, how does the book, uh, the, the story, enter into our relationships so it's it's material in these uh, these uh, relationships that happen.
0: Um, yeah, no, I, I yeah I really appreciate uh, the way that you're you're talking about that, Gail, because I think it, there's obviously in terms of thinking about children's art making, it's it's a similar set of considerations, right? And there's uh, in terms of the goal isn't necessarily what's made, but you know it's it's the the com- complex processes material processes that sweep it up into being, right? And yeah, it may end up there, but it certainly doesn't stop there, right? It continues and gets swept up again into a different sort of assemblage of of, of relationships and, and uh, material consideration. So it's really, yeah, it's interesting to hear you talk about literacy in a similar way. Mm-hmm.
2: So yeah, and I, I guess I want to add to that two things. One is I, I was recently... A meeting with Kim Powell, who you both know is an art educator here at Penn State. Um, and this uh, past semester, she taught a class in the College of Ed called The Creative Child, which was different than teaching an art methods class. And Kim has talked about how, when she had the, the label art methods removed from it, and it just became The Creative Child, She she talked about how incredibly freeing it was because there were sets of things that she felt she needed to do if it was called art education, but if it was just called the creative child, she felt free from that set of constraints to, you know, to explore what it that could mean. What it could mean to, to have or be or be with a creative child, uh, or or to be one. Um, so that was, you know, partly we get caught up in our uh, sense of constraints about what we are supposed to do as with these labels: art educator, our literacy. Educate. So that's one thing, but I think the other thing is, I'm not saying that learning how to use a brush or learning how to mix paint or learning how to read or learning how to think about what's going on in the text. I'm not saying those things don't matter. or They shouldn't happen. I, I, I think they absolutely, you know, providing that kind of information as a teacher, that kind of mentoring and modeling, it helps children. It can help. It has the potential to help children get caught up in their own, in that movement of desire and be able to do things that they want to do. Mm -hmm. You know, we all are grateful, I think, to the great teachers that we've had who have helped us to articulate things and know how to do things and think about things in ways that allow us to take ourselves further. So, you know, the question for me is always about whether the ways that the things that we're offering to people enable this, I'm taking this from Leon Moser, who was a close collaborator with Deleuze and Guattari, she talked about learning in classrooms as being based in desire. And what she meant was the ways that curriculum does or does not fuel our, our, our ability to go out in the world in and, and bigger and bolder and more impassioned ways. And certainly the material of curriculum can do that and does do that. Not always, but I mean, it can be so the same curriculum can be aggressive and oppressive, or it can be incredibly empowering.
0: Yeah, and I think that it connects in some ways to what you said in your talk about materials having, carrying with them always a, ca- a capacity to re- and deterritorialize. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No. This. Thank you, Gail. Um, as always, we really appreciate our time with you, and it's 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 such a pleasure to to think with you and to hear about the work that you're doing. It's very inspiring. So, thank you very much for your time.
2: Well, I really appreciate the opportunity. Sorry, I interrupted you. No, I just um, said thank you, Gail. <laughs> yeah. Um, I really appreciate giving the opportunity to do it. It's fun and exciting for me. You know, I, I think you probably know that feeling of how you how it feels exciting and expansive for you to explore your own thoughts about something. So I appreciate your invitation to do that.
0: Yeah. So You're yeah. very welcome. Right. Next time on Childhood Art, we sit down with Dr. Hannah Dyer of Brock University in Canada. Until then, visit our webpage for additional updates and news at www.centerforthestudyofchildhoodart.com. Thank you.